Welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church Cardiff. We are a church that is learning to live like Jesus for the restoration of our city and the renewal of our nation. During the coronavirus outbreak, we have both online and in-person gatherings across all of our sites in and around Cardiff. So wherever you feel comfortable at the moment, you can engage with church. You can find all of the details you'll need on our website, vineyardcardiff.org Sundays. Here's this week's talk from our Associate Pastor, Alice Meads. Hi, hello. Today we are finishing up our series looking at the life of Joseph um, in the book of Genesis. And uh, for those of you that have been uh, listening to this series, you'll know I started it a good few weeks ago now. And we looked at, uh, firstly, we looked at the call on Joseph's life. How as a 17-year-old boy, he has this dream um, that one day his brothers, he's got lots of brothers, how one day they would bow down. Um, before him, that he would essentially have a position of power over them. And since then, Joseph's life has been a bit of a roller coaster, hasn't it, with lots of kind of twists and turns. And, you know, his brothers were full of jealousy towards him and they sell him into slavery, so kind of a low point. And then um, he ends up in in Potiphar's house, who was this kind of high-ranking official in Egypt, and he does really well there, so it's kind of a high point. Then Potiphar's wife, she uh, falsely accuses uh, Joseph of raping her and he gets put in prison, so low point. Then he gets forgotten about in prison, low point. Then um, Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, he has these kind of couple of crazy dreams and it's remembered that Joseph can interpret dreams. So Joseph is brought out of prison in Egypt and brought before Pharaoh to interpret these dreams. And Pharaoh's dreams were, um, Joseph tells them they are about the fact that over the next seven years, Joseph says, Egypt is going to experience seven years of plenty, um, where there'll be lots of crops, lots of harvest. But the seven years after that are going to be seven years of famine. And uh, Potiphar is so impressed with what he sees in Joseph. And the Bible tells us he sees the spirit of the Lord in Joseph. And Joseph, um, you know, has unintentionally been, it turns out, in a job interview. (laughs) He gets given the job of uh, making sure that in the next seven years that are going to come, the seven years of plenty, that enough food and reserve is stored up for the seven years after that of famine. And today we're going to pick up the story um, in chapter 42. Um, And this is at the point in the story where Joseph is in this position of leadership and power in Egypt. And they've had the seven good years and they're kind of just started a couple of years into the seven um, years of famine. And this famine, it tells us, isn't just in Egypt, it's gone the whole way around the region. And people are pouring into Egypt to come before Joseph and try and buy food off um, from Egypt to take back with them. And then the story in chapter 42 cuts back to Jacob, Joseph's dad, um, and Joseph's brothers. And they are hungry. You know, the famine has affected them in Cana and uh, in Canaan, and they are really, really hungry. Um, And so Jacob says, well, you're going to have to go to Egypt and try and buy us some food. So he sends all the brothers off, except for Benjamin. If you remember, um, uh, the favourite son in the family was Joseph, and uh, Jacob thinks that Joseph has been killed. So, uh, and his new favourite, or his second favourite, is Benjamin. So he sends all the brothers off, but he won't let Benjamin go, because he's kind of trying to protect him, doesn't want anything to happen to him. So the rest of the brothers all go off to Egypt. And um, they fall before Joseph and, um, and ask and beg to buy food. 
And this kind of moment in chapter 42, it's like the kind of the climax of the story. It's where all the different things have been leading to. This moment where Joseph is finally kind of reunited with his brothers. It's like the climax of the story. Um, so chapter 42, verse 6, let's have a look at it. Genesis chapter 42. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognised his brothers, they did not recognise him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. You know, we're all brothers. Your servants are honest men, not spies. I mean, this is a big moment for Joseph, isn't it? The moment, as says it, we're told in verse 9, that he remembered this dream he'd had years before that his brothers would bow down before him. And here he is, that moment um, that he'd foreseen all those years before. And that, that proof or that moment to acknowledge that God has been faithful to him, that God has been speaking to him throughout his whole life. He would have seen that God has been faithful, that he had a much bigger plan than Joseph could ever have imagined for his life. And that God has been with him all along. It would have been a real emotional moment alongside the fact that he's seeing his brothers for the first time. And as you'll see that Joseph, he knows who they are, but they don't recognise him and he doesn't tell them. Instead, he accuses them of being spies, even though he knows that they're not. Um, and then what happens over the next kind of few chapters, the rest of chapter 42, 43, 44, is kind of a bit crazy. It all goes a bit crackers, <laughs> if you like. Um, what Joseph does is he has Simeon, one of the brothers, put in jail. Um, and um, the brothers have explained who they are. They said, oh, we've got another brother called Benjamin. He's back home with our father. And Joseph's like, well, if you're telling the truth, prove it. Go and get this other brother you say you've got, Benjamin, and bring him back to me. But until then, Simeon's going to stay in jail. This brother will stay in jail. So the rest of the brothers, without Simeon, kind of head off home, a bit confused and worried and anxious, probably. And um, on the way, they look inside the bags of food that they've bought, and they realise that the money that they've used to buy this food has been put back in the bags, which you might think is a win, you know, free food, woohoo! <laughs> but actually, um, they really, they quickly uh, realise that this could look like they've stolen the food, right? So they are really nervous and worried about what to do. And they get home, um, they tell Jacob all that's happened, but Jacob is like, um, no, 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 you are not taking Benjamin back, he is staying right here. Sorry, Simeon, you're going to have to stay in jail. Dysfunctional family. <laughs> so, um, Simeon stays in jail, the rest of them back with their father, they you know use up over time, they use up all the food that they've bought and they run out of food and eventually their hand is forced and Jacob realises that the only way they're going to get more food is to go back to Egypt and that they'll have to take Benjamin with them. So he sends them all off this time with Benjamin back to Egypt and the brothers come again before Joseph, this time with Benjamin. And Joseph um, invites them all around for tea. He lets Simeon out of jail and they all have this dinner. And um, whilst they're having dinner, Joseph hides this kind of fancy silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And just as the brothers are about to head off, he says, someone's stolen the cup, Stol stolen my fancy cup. And they look in all the bags and yeah, in Benjamin's bag, there's this fancy cup. And Joseph's like, sorry, you're going to have to go to jail, Benjamin. 
the rest of the brothers are full of um, a kind of, 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 of anxiety in this moment because they know that their brother, he's, their, their father rather, Jacob, he's still grieving the loss of Joseph and there's no way he could take losing Benjamin as well. So they plead for forgiveness. They plead, they have no idea what's gone on and they plead Joseph to let Benjamin out of jail. It all gets very, very emotional. It's a complete kind of, <laughs> it's a kind of a crazy, again, like another kind of roller coaster story over those few chapters. And all of this happens before Joseph tells them who he actually is. Why? Why does he do this? Well, I mean, the short answer is we don't know. We're not told. Um, I don't believe this is being held up as the model of what to do um, towards people that have wronged you, just in case you're getting any ideas. <laughs> it's just what actually happened. We do know one thing um, throughout these chapters, though, is that Joseph isn't trying to play some kind of mean game where he's ma making mean things happen to them and laughing at, it, uh, laughing at their expense. That's not what's happening. We see in these chapters that Joseph is deeply emotionally kind of struggling, that he is full of emotion. He is full of grief. He is trying to process all that has gone on, being confronted with his brothers again. You know, Genesis 42, 24, it says this, that Joseph turned away from them and began to weep. Well, Genesis 43, 30, deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Benjamin, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. Joseph is full of emotion. This is really hard for him. He's struggling to deal with seeing them again and to deal with, um, you know, the hurt, the pain of having, of all, that, all the wrong that has been done to him. And you know, I think that um, the one thing we can say about these chapters with confidence is that, that the messiness here, it, they, it's like it speaks to the reality of forgiveness, of dealing with the stuff in our past. You know, it is hard, isn't it, forgiveness? It is hard, it is emotional, it is messy. It is not an easy thing to do. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis, who says this, forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have someone to forgive. Isn't that true? It's almost like when I see people kind of running a marathon, I think, oh, I'd love to do that until the reality of the training, you know? <laughs> forgiveness is a lovely idea until you've got to forgive someone. You know, um, all of us will no doubt have experienced or will experience what C.S. Lewis is talking about there at some point in our lives, you know, where it's really difficult to forgive someone. You know, I've spoken at length um, previously about my relationship with my dad and how that's been a difficult relationship. You know, I didn't grow up with him. He was absent throughout most of my childhood. And my relationship with him over the years has involved me having to do a lot of this difficult, deep, emotional work of forgiveness, of processing and forgiving again and coming back and forgiving again. It's not easy, but it is entirely necessary. And Joseph knows this. So let's jump back into the moment where Joseph finally, finally lets them in on who he actually is. So now we're um, skipped forward into Genesis chapter 45. Again, Joseph is full of emotion. It says this, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one who sold you into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. 
For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no ploughing and reaping. But God set me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant of earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall all live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honour accorded to me in Egypt and everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards his brothers talked with him. <laughs> I bet they did, had a lot to say I'm sure. It's this big, emotional, messy moment, isn't it, in these verses? And kind of amidst all the kind of the snot and the tears and the wails, notice amidst all of that how much Joseph speaks of God, of all that God has done, how much he gives God the glory in these moments. He is totally, totally focused on the things of God and that all that God has done, despite the wrong that was done to him by his brothers. And you know what, it's because... He's so focused on God and he is so aware of the faithfulness and goodness of God that he can forgive his brothers in that moment. He can see the grace and kindness of God in his own life and he's able to offer it to his brothers. And Jesus makes it clear that, um, you know, hundreds of years later, Jesus made it very clear that we are to do likewise. In uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 18, Jesus tells this kind of, um, kind of almost comical uh, story about a king who lets off a man, uh, uh, lets a man off his debt. This man owes the king billions of pounds. If you work out, you know, the, the, the kind of money it's talking about in the story. So it kind of amounts to a modern day equivalent of billions of pounds. This man owes the king and the king writes off this debt and lets the man walk out debt free. And this man leaves the king's presence and then he runs in to a servant who owes him a couple of quid. And this man grabs the servant round the neck, tries to choke him and like, give me back my money. And he has this servant thrown into jail to work off this debt until he's allowed to be free. And the king hears about this story, that of what this man has done. And uh, he sees how unjust this is. And he has this man, the man who he let off billions of pounds thrown into jail to work off this billions of pounds which, let's be honest, is going to take a long time. Not great news for this man. And it's kind of this poignant story Jesus tells. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of got these comical extremes in it. And you know what? As you listen to that story, you think, that man was a complete fool, wasn't he? To be let off all that money and then demand money off his servant, a couple of quid off his servant. But you know what? As Jesus tells the story, as he had a way of doing, he lands this kind of sucker punch at the end. And he says to his disciples, to people listening, that is what it's like when you don't forgive. Ouch. You know, Jesus is saying that if we don't forgive others, then we really haven't understood the gospel, how much we have been forgiven. You know, and that for us to not forgive others, it's like an insult to what he did in dying for us on the cross. And what Jesus is doing is he's tying together the, the grace that we receive, the forgiveness we receive from him, and then how that should affect how we live um, how our relationship should look like and um, with those around, uh, around us. You know, that our, that our 
um, kind of the life that we find in Jesus and the life that we live with those around us that they are inextricably linked you know the the way that we um, the way that we conduct our relationships the way that we live with people it's like the testing ground for the life that we found in Jesus it's where we see it played out how much we've understood the grace of Jesus think about your past week whatever this week has looked like can I ask you how has the way that you've lived your life this week how has it reflected the life that you have in Jesus? How much has it reflected the life that you found in Jesus? And when we forgive, it's like we have an opportunity to demonstrate the very heart of our faith. You know, the gospel message that Jesus is, of Jesus' death, um, that Jesus died for our sins and for our freedom, it's a message of freedom. The gospel message is a freedom cry, and to forgive is to offer a freedom cry. You know, it's a, it's a cry of freedom. Firstly, it's a cry of freedom to those who have wronged us. Choosing to offer grace, not punishment. You know, when it all starts to go wrong for Joseph's brothers, you know, after they've kind of come before him that first time, when it all starts to go wrong, um, when they see that their money's been returned and they might get accused of stealing, when it's all going a bit wrong, the first thing they assume straight away is that God is punishing them for what they did to Joseph all those years before. You know, chapter 42, 21, the brothers say this to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. You know, Joseph's brothers are living full of guilt. They are well aware that they deserve punishment by what they did to Joseph, the cruel thing they did to Joseph, selling him into slavery. And they feel like there is no one that would forgive them. There's no way they should be forgiven, that they could be forgiven for what they've done. And so then that moment we just read about a few chapters later in, 40, in chapter 45, that moment where they are before Joseph and they realise that this man, the most, one of the most powerful men in the world, is actually the brother that they sold to slavery. And they are terrified. They are absolutely terrified. You can only imagine what they would have been expecting from Joseph in that moment. You know, maybe being thrown into prison, maybe, I don't know, torture or enslavement or I don't know instant death you know you would have been expecting Joseph to punish you but instead Joseph embraces them and he welcomes them back and he not only does he do this so not only does he offer words of forgiveness but he shows them the extent of his forgiveness by uh, promising them um, his provision and his generosity throughout the rest of the famine he says this to them from verse 10 that we read you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me you and your children and your children's ch children and your flocks your herds and all that you have there I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty he goes well well beyond words of forgiveness to demonstrate the fullness um, of forgiveness of grace he's willing to offer them this story, this moment in the story, almost reminds me of the story Jesus told of the prodigal son. It's a prodigal son moment, isn't it? You know, if you know that story where the, the wayward son goes home to his father eventually, expecting punishment, yet receiving mercy and forgiveness. And it's like that moment here, the brothers expect punishment, but they receive grace and forgiveness. It's like a glimpse, this moment in Joseph, of, it's a glimpse of the gospel story, isn't it? Of our story, of how much... We deserve punishment, but receive forgiveness. To forgive someone is a freedom cry to those who need our forgiveness, 
whether they take it or not, whether or not the person who wronged you is sorry. You know, we may be fooled into thinking that to withhold forgiveness is kind of some way of like punishing them, the person, you know, which it may be. But the truth is we end up punishing ourselves all the more so when we withhold forgiveness. Forgiveness cry, uh, forgiveness is, a, is also a cry of freedom for ourselves. I've loved, always loved this quote by Lewis Smedes who said this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. You know, there's something about unforgiveness that holds us captive and defines us. You know, we've all seen that in people, haven't we? You know, a bitterness, a hardness of heart in someone who has a lack of forgiveness. And that can overspill into every relationship and every area of their life. Uh, there's this project I love called The Forgiveness Project. They've got a website if you want to go on their website and have a look at it. And um, their aim is to share stories of forgiveness and reconciliation and how um, transforming that can be. And on their website you'll see there's loads of stories of people that have suffered in the most like unimaginable ways. Some of the worst things we think you know we know can happen to a human being has happened to some of these people. And they tell their story of how they came to forgive the, their perpetrator and how they um, sought reconciliation. And um, you know they're really tough reading. And I was reading uh, through a couple of these uh, recently and um, you know, one thing that stood out to me in a couple of the stories that I found really interesting um, was that, that um, for some of the people in this forgiveness project, um, they, they, may, they maybe met someone who had also experienced a similar thing, a similar thing had happened to them. And for this person in the project, meeting someone who'd had a similar experience but been unable to forgive their perpetrator. And, and for these people, seeing how much, how affected this person was by their lack of forgiveness, by being unable to forgive, how much it had held them captive, how much their life was now defined by their loss and their inability to forgive. That was a motivating factor for the people in the, in the forgiveness project to actually um, take every effort possible to, to offer forgiveness. They could see that it was uh, the only good option available to them was to forgive, in spite of the great injustices that they'd faced. They could see that forgiveness was the only good option that they had if they didn't want to spend the rest of their lives defined by the injustice that had happened to them. Forgiveness is the only good option available to us. But that's not to say it's easy. You know, I started by saying this and I'll say it again. I'm not trying to downplay, downplay how difficult this is. You know, let me be clear. Forgiveness is not saying that what happened to you doesn't matter. That it didn't matter. Not at all. It matters deeply to God. Ian's, uh, Ian did a preach a couple of weeks ago around the spiritual practice of lament. I think that might be a really good tool here for people processing unforgiveness. You know, the invitation here um, is to sit before God and lament the injustice that's been done to you, where you've been wronged, the harm that's been done to you, the hurt that you still feel. Come sit before your Heavenly Father and lament before him. And you will realise in that place how deeply it matters to God, how deeply our, heart, our hurt and our pain matters to God. And that's why he died for us on the cross. Forgiveness doesn't erase the past, but it does allow us in our present and in our future. It opens us up to receive the love of God, to allow him into our lives all the more. It's a freedom cry. Forgiveness is a freedom cry that says, I will not be defined by the wrongs that have happened to me in my past. I will not be defined by this, but instead I will be defined by a gospel message of freedom. You know, and if you're, if you're struggling to forgive someone right now in your life, 
let this struggle that you're currently be in, let that drive you back into the place before your Heavenly Father. Come before him, lament, pour out your heart towards him. Let this be an opportunity to receive more of his grace in your life. As you lay down your, your need to be right, your anger, your fear, and you let God be God in that moment. And do you know, a really powerful thing to do in that time is to ask God to show you how he sees the person that has wronged you. And to then begin to pray for them yourself. Now the reality is that, is that when we sit before God and we realise how much he's forgiven us and how imperfect we are ourselves, it allows us to have that grace for others to realise that they are human too, marked by their own stuff, their own brokenness that affects their behaviour. You know, and I've had to do that over the years, you know, processing my relationship with my dad that I mentioned, you know, come before God and say, let me see him how you see him. And then to be able to start to pray for him and forgive him. Now, forgiveness, as I said, it's a freedom cry to those that have hurt us. And it's a freedom cry to ourselves for ourselves and finally it's a freedom cry for the greater purposes of God that of reconciliation our God is a God of reconciliation this story in Joseph is a story of reconciliation you know chapter 50 the last chapter in Genesis tells about how Jacob how he is brought over from Canaan to Egypt and is reunited with the son that he thought he'd lost um, you know the whole kind of weird and wonderful extended family pack up their stuff from Canaan and they come and move um, to live um, amongst Joseph and, his, and uh, his family and they make themselves at home and Jacob you know he's reconciled to his son before eventually dying in his old age. Jacob's forgiveness of his brothers in this moment it paved the way for reconciliation. You know you cannot have reconciliation without forgiveness. You cannot have reconciliation without forgiveness. You know and kind of on, on a pastoral note I would say that you can have forgiveness, however, without reconciliation. You know, let me be clear that we will not always be able to be reconciled. You know, some situations where there has been abuse, where there's been maybe addiction or adultery, or where there's a huge imbalance of power, you know, we might never be, and perhaps should never be, reconciled to the person that's wronged us. We should still work towards forgiveness, however hard and difficult that might be but we, might, we may never be able to be reconciled to that person. And it's worth saying, you know, in these situations, that is really, you know, where we have been um, kind of hurt in the most deepest, most awful ways, that it is good to process and to walk through that difficult journey of forgiveness with either a really close Christian friend or, you know, where appropriate in a counselling environment. You know, for me, I spoke oh, a few, a few couple of months ago now about how some words that were spoken over me were deeply painful. That, you know, as a young, um, I think I was about 21, uh, how someone said to me that I wasn't, um, that they could never see me getting married. That I wasn't the kind of person that would get married. Um, not marriage, good marriage material. Can you believe that? <laughs> um, and it deeply hurt me in that moment. And it was only, you know, said in recent years, in a counselling environment, was I able to examine the extent of the damage that had been done to me in that moment. Was I able to um, think that through, work that through, um, in this counselling environment and finally be able to fully forgive. We, it, it might not be appropriate to be reconciled. And the other thing is the other person might refuse to be reconciled. Reconciliation will not always be possible if the other person doesn't want to be reconciled. You know, sometimes making our peace with that is really, really difficult, isn't it? You know, I had friends who had fallen out with their neighbours 
Um, these were Christian friends of mine, and this was kind of unusual for them. They're not the kind of people that are often at odds with people. And it was over kind of a bit of disputed land on the two properties. And they really tried to reconcile themselves to their neighbours. They said sorry for what, um, you know, what they needed to say sorry for, um, unintent any, any, any kind of unintentional harm that had been done. You know, I was there to witness the moment uh, where they walked towards their neighbours with a hand outstretched to say, look, sorry, can we be reconciled? And the neighbour just pff, walked away. That can be really difficult, can't it? I've always taken great comfort from Paul's words in the book of Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, as far as it depends on you. Our responsibility in these moments is to work through what we need to forgive and offer reconciliation where that's appropriate. It won't always be reciprocated. Anyway, back to the text. So in this story, in Joseph's life, reconciliation is possible and it's Joseph's forgiveness that paves the way. And we read up in the, the last chapter of Genesis that Joseph lives to be 110. He gets to see his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and all of his extended family grow up around him. And when he finally dies, he dies full of faith for what God is going to do next. He says to his brothers in Genesis 50, 24, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I love that. Joseph was such a man of faith. You know, even in his dying moments, he sees what God intends next. He sees that God is weaving together a story that is much bigger than Joseph's life. The final word in the book of Genesis, if you notice, is the word Egypt. It's the word Egypt. That hint of what God is going to do next in the next um, book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, that God is going to break, break in through Moses and rescue all of his people out of Egypt and into the land that he's promised them eventually. Now, Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers makes way, it's a key part in this story unfolding. It makes way for this reconciliation. It allows God to break in with his plans and purposes. You know, forgiveness is a chance to partner with God in extending his kingdom and his purposes here on earth. You know, think back to um, that parable I shared a, a little while ago about, uh, that Jesus told about the, the man who'd been let off a big debt and was unforgiving to the person that owed him a couple of pounds. Imagine if instead he had chosen to let his servant off that couple of pounds. And then imagine if that servant had gone off and let the next person, you know, he'd then chosen to be gracious and let someone that owed him some money. He let them off that debt and so on and so on, starting a chain of grace and forgiveness instead of unforgiveness. That's what we get to do when we offer forgiveness. We get to change how things are done, the patterns of unforgiveness that are right at the heart of how so much stuff that's going on around us is happening. At the heart of that is so much unforgiveness. We are called to extend God's ministry of reconciliation. God is a God of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 Verse 18 says this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We get to be people that bring the message of reconciliation. I spoke a few weeks back um, about how discovering our calling in our lives is more like kind of doing a dot to dot with God than knowing the whole picture from the, from the beginning. And you know, this is true not just for our own lives, but for the bigger story of God. The story of God reconciling himself to his people. 
And Joseph died knowing that he, whilst his kind of final dot was done, that God was using his life, weaving it together to make a much bigger story. The story of God reconciling himself to his people. And God is inviting us to play our part in bringing about this story, to join up our dots into his greater, into his greater story.